Good morning, everybody. Man, looking out the window, it looks a lot different this week than it did last week, doesn't it? Man, God is amazing, isn't he? Give us all that snow and then wipe it away in a couple of rains. It's and, and of course, a 60-degree uh, day this week. That was really great. Um, but wow, it just it amazes me that, uh, that we have such a creator, such a God who, who makes beauty in so many different ways. And uh, we're going to talk about that just a little bit this morning. Uh, but first, how many of you have ever heard of the TV show Columbo? Anybody watch Columbo? Okay, all the old people are raising their hands. <laughs> Anybody under 30 ever, ever heard of Columbo? No, of course not. Because this was a show that was made in, in the 70s. But of course... Uh, all of you that are under 30 might recognize this guy. He was the grandfather who read the book in The Princess Bride. He's, he's the one that, that read that book. So maybe if you've seen that movie, you know the same guy. But Columbo was uh, uh, a TV show. It was a detective show. Um, and you guys like detective shows? Anybody? Yeah? I love detective shows. I told you guys, law shows, detective shows. I wanted to be a lawyer at one point. Um, but... Uh, Columbo uh, was a detective, and uh, I was recently re-watching a couple of episodes of, of the show, and it just struck me how normal and how not normal this guy seemed all at one time. He was, he was considered, he would, he would have been described as like a bumbling detective, kind of, right? He just never seemed to know what he was talking about. He was always asking questions. He was always forgetting things, and... He, he, he even dressed, I mean, you look the way he's dressed, he dressed shabbily, he talked slowly, acted like he didn't know anything, and every time he talked to a suspect, he would just, like, ask a ton of questions. Um, he would ask a lot of clarifying questions, and he'd ask them over and over and over again, these, almost these same questions. He'd, and he'd listen, and then he'd come back to uh, whoever was talking to him, and, and, and he'd, he'd try to find out if he understood what he was hearing. And usually, he would start out like, all right, let me understand this. Let me see, can you tell me if I've got this right? And then he would kind of uh, restate what the person says so that he is sure this is what you have said. And many of the TV criminals got very frustrated with Columbo because he seemed like an idiot. He did. He seemed like he didn't know what he was doing. But as we kept watching Columbo and as we kept watching him work, what we learned is that he wasn't an idiot. He would come onto a crime scene and he would look around and he would formulate questions and he'd talk to the, 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 the witnesses or the suspect and he would, um, without any kind of judgment in his mind, he would just start trying to collect information. And he spoke very gently. And he, and he spoke very respectfully. And he was, I mean, he was, I'm sorry, let me see if I can. Uh, do you, and, and he was very respectful in his speech. And it worked. Because as he listened to all the answers, to all the questions, he was able to start identifying some inconsistencies especially in the testimony, in the, in the interviews with the suspect. And he'd point them out. And after he'd point them out, he'd say, can you explain that? 
Like, right, you said, you said this thing, and then you said this thing, and they don't really matter. Can you explain why those things don't match? But he still did it just very gently, very respectfully. And the really cool thing about the Bible, when we read the Gospels, we notice Jesus doing the same kind of thing. How many of you have read the Gospels recently? If you've read the Gospels recently and you read the way that Jesus talked to people, even the people that were trying to kill him, the Pharisees, he spoke very gently. He most of the time would, would speak how we would think respectfully. And most importantly, he asked questions. Somebody came and asked him a question. He wouldn't often answer their question directly. He would ask another question. He would ask a clarifying question. And if we can learn how to do this, if we can learn how to listen respectfully and think and speak respectfully and gently with people who might come up and try to attack our faith, we might realize there are some inconsistencies in the arguments against God or against Christ, or against Christianity, or against church. And this spring, up until Easter, we are walking through a sermon series called God on Trial. And we're exploring all of these different ways that God and God's people have been indicted through Scripture and have been indicted in the modern day. And of course, last week we talked about this word, indictment. And we saw that an indictment is an accusation of wrongdoing. Did you know that people think Christians do things wrongly? It's true. People think we're wrong. And I got to admit, sometimes Christians are wrong. But most of the time we're right about God and we're right about our faith. And we're going to kind of take a look at these indictments, the things that people say against God, the people think that they say against humans about his children. And we're going to kind of continue that pattern throughout the series. We're going to, we're going to take a look at what are they saying about God? What are they saying about us? Where are the inconsistencies in these arguments and the claims that people make against Christians and against Christianity? But before we do that, we need to learn how we can talk about our faith with gentleness and respect. Because we like to argue. How many of you like to argue? Go ahead. Some of you can raise your hand. You can be honest. I love to argue. But when we're sharing our faith, arguing is not usually the best way to do it. So this morning, we're going to look at one, we're going to look at one indictment, the big one, the one that it just kind of comes up all the time, and that is God does not exist. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, children of God, we know that God exists. First, we know because Scripture tells us that God exists. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? These are the four, in this verse, are the four most important words for Christians. In the beginning, God and if 
we are honest with ourselves and truthful with ourselves, nothing else that comes after is as important as in the beginning God. Yes, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, God created us. Yes, He did those things that He called good. But He didn't have to. And He would still be God. So this is an important thing that we need to remember. And if we don't believe that in the beginning God then everything that we do here at Morning Hour Chapel is a waste of time. And you guys can all go home and sleep in next Sunday morning. In the beginning, God. And we read this. And we read throughout Scripture. And we read about God. We read about who He is. We read about His, his nature. We read about the, the things that He does. But we're also told that we don't necessarily even have to read the Bible in order to see God. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. Even if we did not have the Bible, which nobody had in the beginning, after God created the heavens and the earth, until sometime way later when people started writing things down, we could look to the heavens and see the handiwork of God. We could see God's glory in the heavens, in the earth, in the trees, in the rivers, in the oceans. All of it filled with the glory of God. And this is the first thing, I mean, we, we can look at all kinds of other passages. We can, we can look at Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Talks about God's eternal nature. God was before everything. And even God spoke about himself as the creator in Job chapter 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God is Acknowledging, yes, I laid the foundations of the earth. And if we believe that, if we believe that God exists, then we can start taking the next step to understanding who He is and understanding who we are. That we are sinners who are fallen from grace from God's grace. And we have no way to get back to God except through His Son, Jesus Christ. But the world, the, the culture, a lot of things, this is usually their first argument. God does not exist. They'll say there's no evidence that God exists. There's no proof that God exists. Sometimes they're a lot not as nice when they say those things. But they ask us, they, they, have you ever been asked by a non-believer, prove to me that God exists? Anybody ever been asked that? Prove to me that God exists. Show me the evidence. Oh, by the way, you can't use the Bible as your evidence. I've heard that one before too. You can't use the Bible. That's like, that's like somebody coming up to you and saying, um, prove to me that Julius Caesar existed, but don't use any history books. Prove to me that he existed. A little bit more difficult, isn't it? 
but because the heavens declare the glory of God. Because before the mountains were formed, God is. We still have a starting place. We still have a way that we can share God's nature. We can share what God has done. But we won't use the Bible, except that eventually they'll want to use the Bible because the way they argue against God is to argue against what he has done in the Bible. And we're going to take a look at one of those things today. So prove to me that God exists. And, and this is the way it sometimes go with indictments against God. They put a kind of limitation on you. You, only can ha- you can only use certain things. You have to use things outside of the Bible to prove these things. And usually that's because they believe God, the Bible's not God's word, so it doesn't really count for anything which we also know is not true. But how? How do we enter a conversation with someone who doesn't believe that God exists about the existence of God? And maybe just as importantly, how do we prove these things? Can we prove that God exists? And this is usually where Christians sometimes break down a bit because when we're challenged with these kinds of questions, we're not quite sure what to say. We're not quite sure how to answer. And to be honest, sometimes we are scared of being ridiculed or we're scared of being mocked or we're scared of being laughed at. But there is a way that we can have these conversations that can make us feel a little bit more comfortable and that can open the conversation more. And that's by asking our own questions, just like Jesus did. When you're reading the Gospels, when Jesus was confronted either about himself or about God the Father or about one of the laws in Scripture, Jesus rarely gave a direct, immediate answer. And I'll show you an example in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is approached by a man who needs healing. And the trouble is, the man approach Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day of rest, and God had commanded Israel that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And there were some Pharisees in the synagogue where Jesus was. And we read in chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 9, Jesus went from there, entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they... The Pharisees, the leaders of the synagogue, asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they asked him that so that they might accuse him. So that they might be able to get him for blasphemy. Because if he looked at them and just said, it is fine to work on the Sabbath, that was blasphemy against God's law, and he could be killed. So this is the situation that Jesus is in. It's a direct question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus could have answered. He could have answered yes. He could have answered no. But he chose a different tactic. And in verse 11 we see, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. What? 
What are you talking about, Jesus? We're not talking about sheep. We're talking about healing on the Sabbath. What are you, what is, what are you saying? But see, what Jesus wants the Pharisees to do, and they don't do it often or very well, but he also wants the people that are there in the synagogue to do is think differently about the Pharisees' question. Jesus turns the question a little bit. He guides the question a little bit more. If you have a sheep and it falls into the pit, are you going to leave it there all night? Are you going to wait until the Sabbath is over to go rescue your sheep, or are you going to pull it out? And he could have asked that of anybody in that congregation. But Jesus wants them to think about it. Not only that, he wants you to think about this, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. And if we start connecting the dots ourselves, and of course we have the benefit of having had Jesus' words written down for us for almost 2,000 years, we can say, yes, a man is worth more than a sheep. Common sense? Yes. And that's what Jesus was getting at. Let's use some sense. Instead of accepting the premise of the question, Jesus asks a clarifying question. Which one of you having a sheep wouldn't go and pull it out? And then he compares that act to healing somebody on the Sabbath. And in doing so, Jesus defined healing. But he didn't define healing as work. Look what he says in uh, Matthew 12, 12. Oh, I don't have that written down. I'm sorry about that. In Matthew 12, 12, he says, So it is lawful to do good, on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Not it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good. Is pulling a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath good? Most people in the audience would have said yes. If it's good to pull a sheep out, it's good to pull a man out of the despair of being wounded or sick. And Jesus turns this question around and he defines things in a new way. He makes people look at things in a new way. Now, of course, after Jesus said this, he did heal the man. And then after he healed the man, we read that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we get closer to Easter, the actual accusations and indictments against Jesus that led to his death on the cross. But Jesus challenged the Pharisees' assertions with their indictments. And he did it gently and respectfully. He just asked a question. And it was a simple, common-sense question. And we can do the same thing when we are challenged about our faith. How many of you get a little flustered when somebody asks you about your faith? How many of you feel uncomfortable when somebody asks you about your faith? Especially if they feel like they're attacking you. Have you ever felt attacked for your faith? Sometimes we, we feel like people are just trying to, to do something to, to make fun of us, right? And we get flustered when we talk about our belief in God. And we feel pressured 
I gotta, I gotta answer this person and I gotta do it well because if I don't do it well, they're gonna go to hell. But if I do it well, they're gonna go to heaven. I'm gonna save their soul if I answer this question perfectly. No, you're not. The Holy Spirit is going to save their soul. That's his job. You're off the hook for saving people's souls. So you don't have to be flustered and you don't have to be upset and you don't have to be worried or anxious about talking about your faith. Take a big, big just take a, a breath. Just go, <sighs> Holy Spirit's got him. I'm just going to do my part. I'm going to answer questions. I'm going to have the conversation. And our job is to do that. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in you, the hope of Jesus Christ and his saving power, and do it with gentleness and respect. So we're going to see, how do we do this with gentleness and respect? Let's have a conversation. So somebody comes up to you and says, you're a Christian, right? Now, first of all, that's like, right there, that's like, okay. Thumbs up. I'm either going to get trapped or, or somebody's in really in deep trouble. But you're a Christian, right? All right, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe God exists. Why don't you prove to me that God exists? And at this point, here's what I want you to do. Stop. Say a quick prayer to yourself asking the Holy Spirit to guide you, to tell you what you should say. Because guess what? That's the Holy Spirit's job. We read about that in Scripture. At the right time, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You don't have to worry about it. So stop, say a little prayer, and then ask a question. And the first question I would ask is, well, what do you mean by proof? They might say, well, to prove something means to provide evidence to show that something is true, if they're going to be a civil conversationalist. Provide evidence that shows that something is true. Okay, so you're looking for evidence that God exists. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, what do you mean by God? Have you ever asked that question to anybody? What do you mean by God? Well, the God that you believe in. What God do I believe in? Explain to me, describe to me the God that you think I believe in. And that sounds really argumentative, doesn't it? Well, what God do I believe in? And you don't have to do that. You don't have to do the hands on the hips. What God do I believe in then? No. But you're making a certain assumption about what I believe. So, uh-oh. You know, we talked about discipline down in the Sunday school room. I didn't think it would come to the spoon. <laughs> oh, man. But what God do I believe in? You tell me what you think I think before we can have this conversation. And I think that's a fair question. What is in your mind? What do you think I believe? And people have all kinds of ideas about God. And I don't know if you ever read any of the social media or any of the articles that come out of, from atheists talking about God. I've heard him described as the bearded sky genie that Christians go to to get their wishes granted. 
He's been described that way. Some people, and this is much more prevalent and a little bit more mean, if your God does exist, he is a vengeful, petty, violent thug who is not worthy of my worship. That is an argument that I hear a lot. God is violent. God is petty. God is not worthy of my worship. Okay? How did you come to that conclusion? Don't get upset when they say things about God. And I've seen people get really upset. And you see, have you ever seen a protest where Christians get on one side and non-Christians get on the other side and the Christians are yelling and saying horrible things and the non-Christians are saying horrible things? We don't have to do that. Take a breath. What draws you to that conclusion? Why do you think that God is a violent, petty thug? Why do you think he is vengeful? And wait for their answer. There's a lot of answers for these, for these questions that they will give you. But most of the time they'll say something like this. It's what I read in the Bible. That's how I read it. I've read the Bible from cover to cover, and it turned me into an atheist. Yes, there are people who will say that. I read the Bible from cover to cover, and it turned me into an atheist. My first reaction would be, okay, I thought we weren't going to bring the Bible into this, but thank you for bringing the Bible into it. You've opened that door. Now I can walk through it, and I can use the Bible. You're going to use the Bible against God? I'll use the Bible for God. And again, of all of these answers that they might give, the most popular that I've heard lately, and if you, again, if you read social media, if you read articles, the most popular argument against God and about God being vengeful and petty and violent is the 10th plague of Egypt. Anybody familiar with the 10th plague of Egypt? Let me remind you if you're not familiar. God sent Moses to convince Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, to release the Israelites from an oppressive slavery that's lasted over 400 years. And it has been oppressive slavery. And when Pharaoh declines Moses' request to let the people go, God sends ten plagues onto the land of Egypt and onto its people. And the tenth plague shows God killing all the firstborn males of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's firstborn son. And the argument is that, well, God is vengeful, he is petty, and he is violent because he killed Egypt's firstborn sons. Okay? So what do you, what, what, why does that make you feel that God is those things? Because it's cold-blooded murder. You kill somebody's children, that's cold-blooded murder. Okay? So, how do we respond to that? Have you ever heard of God being accused of murder? He is. God killed my child in that car accident. 
God killed my mother with cancer. I'm not going to worship that God because he kills people for no reason. My mother was a good woman. Why did God have to kill her and these other people that are horrible, doing horrible things? Why did they get to live? But when they use this argument about the tenth plague, we can ask another question. So you've read the Bible? Have you read Exodus chapter 1? Of course, I've read the Bible from cover to cover. All right, do you remember what Exodus chapter 1 says? I'm sorry I, you did say that, that you had read that. Do you remember what it says? And if they don't remember what it says, pull out your phone, pull up your Bible app, and hand it to them. Let them read what Exodus chapter 1 says. And ask them, do you remember what Pharaoh did to the Israelite son? And if they can't remember, we let them read it. It's in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. Here's the highlights for that passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, now these were not Hebrew women, these were Egyptian women that went to the Hebrews to be midwives. One of them was named Shifra, one of them Pua. And he said, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, if we think about what Pharaoh is saying here, what do you think Pharaoh is trying to do? He's trying to kill off the Israelites. You kill off the men, you marry their women to Egyptian men, then you have Egyptian babies. Israel is wiped completely off the map. That's the purpose that Pharaoh had. Of course, these women, they refused. And then in verse 22 we read, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. He has now employed all Egyptians to carry out this murder of the Hebrew boys. After they've read this passage, the next question I might ask is this. Is it possible that the tenth plague was more about God providing justice for Israel than it was about God being a cold-blooded murderer? Is it possible? And that's a phrase I want you to remember. Is it possible? Because we don't have to convince someone of anything. All we have to do is get them to think about the possibility. And if they think about the possibility, whatever their argument is, starts to fall apart. Whatever their indictment, their accusation, whatever it is, they have to think about it again. 
And that's what we want them to do. We want people to think about what they're saying against God. Is it possible? And if they can admit that it's possible, you have drawn them a step closer to you and a step closer to having bigger conversations about God. Instead of getting into their face and calling them names and getting angry with them and attacking them, they're going to come back and ask you another question. And sometimes they're still going to be trying to do the same thing. Well, ha-ha, I've come up with another question. Let me see if you can answer this one, smarty, smart Christian. But they're coming back. You have brought out in them a curiosity. Because if you can, if you can get them to think about one thing, you're going to get them to think about a lot of other things. And as long as we do it with gentleness and respect. We leave the door open for more conversation. We read in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that's what's happened to a lot of people in this world. Their hearts are hardened. If we treat them with gentleness and respect, we might just soften their heart just a little bit. Chip away at it just a little bit. It's not about us being right and them being wrong. We don't have to worry about that. What we need to do is help them sort out some of these misconceptions that they have. Because I have talked to people that have said, well, this is in the Bible. And I say, no, it's not. Can you point to me the place in the Bible where it says that? It's not there. And they have these arguments that they think are right, not because they have done all of this study and all of this reflection. It's because they're hearing everybody else say it. And they're becoming hardened. They're becoming bitter, some people. Some people, it's not about not believing in God. Some people, it's about being so bitter because they've been so hurt by the church. They've been so hurt by Christians that they don't want anything to do with God. And so they'll say, God does not exist. They have not been treated with gentleness and respect. If we want to see people come to Jesus Christ, we have to be gentle. We have to be respectful. Now this fake conversation that I shared with you this morning is fairly close to a conversation that I had with someone about the 10th plague. Did it change their minds? No. Did they become Christians on the spot because I had the answer to a question? No. Because it's not my job. The Bible tells us that we, each of us, have a place in the lives of every single person we encounter. We have an opportunity because God has put them in front of us to share who God is. And it might take 50 people to share who God is before that person 
maybe comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't be the step that is skipped. Don't be the one that breaks the line. Because they may have already talked to 20 other people and their hearts are getting softer and softer and they're becoming more uh, open to the idea that God exists and that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And if we go in there and we are mean, if we are disrespectful, if we treat them horribly, that may be the end of it for them. We want to be the church that opens people's hearts and minds to the possibility that God is exactly who He says He is in Scripture. The Holy Spirit puts into each of us knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And we gain more knowledge and wisdom and understanding as we spend time with God, as we pray, as we study Scripture, as we gather together and ask hard questions of each other about who God is. These are the things that we need to do if we are going to be prepared to make a defense about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And to be able to do it gently and respectfully. And next week we're going to start looking about these conversations about whether God exists or not, who He is, and we're going to take a look also at how the big argument is that, that God doesn't have to exist because science does. And we're going to take a look and we're going to see where God is in science so that we can have those conversations. And those of you who are in college or getting ready to go to college, man, that's going to be a big conversation for you guys. It's going to be huge. Even if you're in high school, it's going to be a big conversation. I hope that you'll join us. I hope that we can learn together how to start asking our own questions to help people to soften their hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are. We thank you that even though you didn't have to, that your love caused you to create all of we thank you that your love created the heavens and the earth. Your love created everything that is on them. Your love created us. And even after we turned our backs on you, your love continued to want us. And Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be drawn back to you. And we thank you for filling us with his Holy Spirit so that we might be able to share who you are with others through our words and through our actions. Father, give us a desire. Let that desire burn inside of each of us to have conversations 
led by questions, led by the Holy Spirit that might see more people come back to you. Give us that strength. Give us that courage. Make us the church that is opening the door for the gospel. Let it be the church that is opening the door for those who are looking for you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as you live your lives, as you go to school, as you go to work, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I pray that God will open your heart, that God will show you people who he has put into your life that you can share Jesus Christ with, not forcefully, not in any way other than gently and respectfully, but that they might be able to see Christ in you and be willing to come and talk to you about the hope that you have in him. God bless you this week.